The scripture reading today comes from Mark 2, verses 23, through Mark 2, or Mark 3, verses 6. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain, and the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing that? Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even on the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they would accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Let's pray as we approach God's word. Father, as we gather together today on this day that uh, throughout the ages, your church is set aside as a, a special day to remember your resurrection, to remember your victory over sin, over death, uh, through your son's resurrection. Um, God, we ask that you would be present with us this morning. We ask that through your Holy Spirit, you would transform our hearts and our lives to make us more and more and more and more like you. God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather this morning, and we ask now that you would bless this time in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Crystal and I, uh, my wife Crystal and I, we both grew up in Christian homes, uh, but we grew up in uh, relatively different contexts. Um, for what that exactly meant, and uh, that was clearly on display one of the first Sundays that we moved to Spencer. Uh, right after we had moved to Spencer, um, got through a church service up in Spirit Lake because we hadn't launched our, our location here yet, and uh, our, our lawn needed mowed. And so after, uh, after the service, um, I decided, well, it needs mode, so I'm going to go ahead and do that. And I didn't tell her after lunch uh, what I was going to do. She just kind of assumed that it was a, a nice Sunday. And, and then all of a sudden, she comes out uh, outside as I'm mowing the, the yard a few minutes after I start. And she says, what are you doing? I said, I'm mowing the yard. Do you, are, you, are you sure you should be doing that? What do you mean? She's like, it's a Sunday, and you're a pastor. And all of your neighbors can see you. Are you sure you should be doing this? So then we had a conversation after that. And I realized it wasn't an issue with Crystal. It was just the context she grew up with. And she grew up in a very uh, uh, conservative, Dutch, Reformed background where this idea of, of the Sabbath was taken very literally. And so if you were mowing your yard 
on a Sunday, that was a big deal. Me, on the other hand, I grew up in a, a very different context where uh, growing up in high school after I was a Christian, the best place or the best time for me to get some hours in at my job was Sunday afternoon after church and before Bible study in the evening. And so very different context uh, that, that brought us to a very different conclusion on, on what is the Sabbath. What is the point of the Sabbath? What, what does it mean for us to actually rest? And maybe many of you have had those questions as well, questions of what does it mean for us to keep the Sabbath? What does it mean uh, for, for me to, um, as, a, as a Christian, as a part of, of uh, Christ's new covenant, what role does the Sabbath have in my, la- in my life? Is it, is it wrong for me to work on a Sunday? And the, the answers to those questions are mixed, just as, as Crystal and I uh, clearly discovered. And it's, it's not that we had a different opinion uh, than one another, uh, but it was just the cultural context that we grew up in uh, revealed that there are different opinions on, this question, or on these questions, on these, uh, on these topics. And many, many of you have probably wrestled with these when, uh, when you've been in, in a place of employment that has required you to work on a Sunday. It's caused you to miss out on all or, or some of, of a church service. Or maybe you, you work uh, as a farmer and, and you're, you're kind of at the mercy of the weather. And you're just required sometimes to go out into the field and put in some hours so that way you can beat the bad weather that is coming. And it's with all of this in mind, these questions about the Sabbath, that all of this is in mind when we come to our text this morning. Our text this morning is one where Jesus addresses the role of the Sabbath in his new kingdom, this kingdom that Jesus comes to establish up to this point In the book of Mark, Jesus has been growing in popularity, while also at the same time he's been growing the number of enemies that are are against him. The gospel of Mark begins with this powerful declaration of of who Jesus is, that Jesus is this long-awaited king. Jesus is the one who is going to usher in God's kingdom, that he's going to usher in God's deliverance for his people. And as we go through the book of Mark, we see time and time again, example after example of Jesus making claims that show that that is exactly who he is if you are willing to listen. And so even starting in the book of uh, in Mark chapter 1, we see that Jesus is, is Lord over evil incarnate. Jesus is Lord over sickness. Jesus is Lord over religious impurity. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Jesus has the authority to invite anyone and everyone, no matter what your past is, no matter what your background is, invite all of us to sit at his table and fellowship with him in his forever kingdom. Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. That's the focus of the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. And then we get to this morning's passage, excuse me, last week's passage, where we see that Jesus is, is using this, uh, the, these illustrations to describe how different his kingdom is than everything that has come before it. That everything that, that we think of when it comes to Jesus' kingdom cannot be controlled, cannot be contained by these old ways of thinking. You don't relate to God the way that you used to in these old religious systems. Now Jesus is saying, you relate to God through me. You relate to God through me, the bridegroom, the, the king of God's forever eternal kingdom. 
Now, as you can imagine, this probably leads to a lot of opposition to Jesus. It would have been hard to hear these things about Jesus. In fact, we see in the Gospels that the crowds begin to say, well, isn't this the carpenter's son? How can this man make all of these claims? And you see, in the Gospel of Mark, we see that Jesus is increasingly a superstar. He's got this crowd following him. He can heal anything that comes his way. And at the same time, he is an extremely divisive figure. In one sense, times don't change, do they? Today, Jesus is still the same divisive figure. There is no consensus about who Jesus is. To this day, we still have some who say, Jesus is Lord, while others say, well, Jesus is just a moral teacher. Or others will even say, well, Jesus is just a fable. He didn't even actually exist. We have some who say that Jesus teaches us how to forgive others, while others make this claim that Jesus is the way that we can be forgiven. Some say that Jesus is a sacrificial leader, while others say that Jesus is not just a sacrificial leader, he's a sacrificial lamb for our sins. And it's this differing opinion that we see starting in the Gospel of Mark, and and to this day is is true for us, that, that we see here in our text this morning two stories of Jesus and the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a very important part of Judaism in the first century. It was crucial for Israel. In fact, it was considered at one point to be the the primary or central tenet of Israel's faith. And the reason was is because God gave the Sabbath to Israel to show that they were not like everyone else. Everyone else is different. They don't have a Sabbath, but we are God's chosen people, and we have been given the Sabbath. In fact, to break the Sabbath was a way of thumbing your nose up at God, to reject his love for his people, and to become a pagan like the rest of the nations surrounding Israel, to be those that are outside of God's grace, to be those that are outside of God's mercy for his people. And that's why we see in the book of Exodus that God actually requires the death penalty for those who break the Sabbath. Exodus chapter 35. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. And yet here, in this morning's text, we see that Jesus is challenging everything that good first century Jews believed about the Sabbath. It's not because Jesus likes messing with people. It's not, like, it's not because Jesus likes or loves being contrarian or riling people up. It's because Jesus has something that he wants to communicate. He has another claim about who he is that he has to tell to these people. And the claim is this. This is what our text is about this morning. True rest and restoration come through Jesus alone. True rest and restoration are found in Jesus alone. It is not the Sabbath that brings rest. It is not careful law abiding that brings us restoration. It is Jesus alone, the Lord of the Sabbath. And so in our time this morning, we're going to just look at these two texts, and we're going to see how they reveal these truths, how how they reveal that Jesus is the the, the one who brings true rest, the, the way that Jesus is the one who brings true restoration for us as a people. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to open up again to, to Mark chapter uh, two, we're going to look uh, at the context of the first story, verses 23 through 24. It says this, 
One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So here's the, the context. Jesus and his disciples are out in the fields on a Sabbath And if you remember from Mark chapter 1, the very last verse of chapter 1, it tells us that that Jesus became so popular that it was hard for him to even enter into a town. And so they're out in the middle of this field, and the disciples are hungry, and so they begin to start snacking. Now, the Pharisees are following Jesus around. They're following his disciples around. They're waiting for him and them to mess up so that way they can call him out on it. And we all know people exactly like them. They're insufferable to be around. They're just people that are just waiting for you to mess up so that they can complain about you. Or they can just drag your name through the mud. That they can make a mountain out of, the, of a molehill. And here, they do exactly that. They seize the moment. They come to Jesus and they call out about his disciples, Sabbath breakers! Sabbath breakers! This is a massive claim. Because if they're correct, then according to the Old Testament law then they deserve death. So why are, the, why are the Pharisees saying that Jesus' disciples are breaking the Sabbath? Well, let's consider the first century and what it meant for us to, to actually live in that day and age. Remember, uh, gas stations, relatively new invention, same thing with convenience stores, rest stops with vending machines, all of those things way, way out into the future here. And so, if you were on a journey, or if you were out away from your home, and you began to be hungry, you were permitted to pick some grain from the fields that you were traveling through. Ownership in that day was far less important than making sure that people were taken care of. And so, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, God says this, If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but... You shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. God here in, in, in the law is declaring that it's fine for you to snack on your neighbor's food while you're walking along the, the, the road. You, you couldn't pull out the combine, fire it up, and start harvesting their food. But you could begin to pick some food if you were hungry because the land and, and the food was not ultimately your neighbor's. It was actually ultimately God's. And so you had this permission from God to take the edge off of your hunger, to, to grab a, a quick bite to eat. And that's what the disciples are doing here in, in uh, Mark chapter 2. They're, they're, tr- they're in this field. They're hungry. And so they decide to, that they're just going to pick a, a, a couple kernels of grain, and they're going to go ahead and eat it. And they're going to eat it raw. It's probably not the most appetizing thing, the most delicious thing, but it gets the job done. Now, the Pharisees are standing off, and, and they say that this is a violation of the Sabbath. The fact that they are picking grain, that's actually a form of harvesting. The fact that they are eating this food, that they are preparing it for them to eat, that's that's working. From a modern-day perspective, the the Pharisees are saying, if you are hungry on a day of rest for you to open a bag of chips, to open a bag of carrots, and and to just have a a quick bite, to, to rinse off an apple, that's a form of work, that's a form of breaking the Sabbath, that's a form of you saying, I want nothing to do with you, God, and I don't want anything to do with your covenant, with your kingdom, with your people. It's ridiculous what the Pharisees are saying here. It's nowhere found in Scripture. It takes a monumental leap of logic to get from what Scripture actually says to where the Pharisees are here. 
But the Pharisees were quite serious about Sabbath observation. And the Bible, it just gives us some general terms. It talks about how we are supposed to not work on the Sabbath. And it doesn't really explain too in-depth what that actually means. And so the Pharisees wanted to make sure that they were protecting people from themselves, that they were honoring God the right way. And so they came up with this list of 39 different activities that were prohibited on the Sabbath. This oral tradition was later written down about 100 years after Jesus in what is called the Mishnah. And I just want to read to you what is prohibited on the Sabbath, okay? Uh, Serious, grave insult or breaking the covenant of God. This is what it says. The forbidden work on the Sabbath are sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, sorting, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, whitening it, combing it, dyeing it, spinning it, weaving, making two loops, weaving two threads, separating two threads, tying a knot, untying a knot, sewing two stitches, tearing for the purpose of sewing two stitches, hunting a deer, slaughtering it, skinning it, salting it, curing its hide, scraping it, cutting it, writing two letters, erasing for the purpose of writing two letters, building, demolishing, extinguishing a flame, lighting a flame, striking with a hammer, carrying from one domain to another. It's pretty serious, right? Could you do much of anything on a Sabbath? No, they were very serious about what it meant for you to keep the Sabbath. And and of course, to them, they even go further than these 39 rules and say, hey, hey, you know what? The, The disciples here, they're breaking the Sabbath. And they're liable to death. And because you are their master, you are responsible for their actions. They're looking for a way to discredit Jesus, and they found it. It's tenuous, but it's going to work for them. They're just, they're just grasping at straws here. They think they got Jesus in this inescapable trap. So how does Jesus respond? Uh, look at verse 25. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for any but the, high priest, but the priest to eat, and also gave it to them who were with him. So Jesus responds, and rather than just saying, hey, that's a terrible interpretation, you guys are just grasping at straws here. Instead of saying that, instead of saying this is just a ridiculous way of looking at God's law, he turns to the Old Testament, turns to these people who, who prided themselves on having most of the Old Testament memorized, and he says, guys, you, you remember the story about David in 1 Samuel chapter 21, right? You guys say you know the Bible. Surely you've read that story, right? And 1 Samuel chapter 21 tells us about this time where David is running from Saul, and in his desperation, he stops at the tabernacle, this place where God dwelled in that time, and he asks the high priest for some food. He says, hey, hey, I'm hungry. My people are hungry. Do you have any food available for me? But there, there's a problem The high priest says, yeah, there's some food, uh, but unfortunately, it is consecrated special loaves of bread. It's bread that has been reserved for the priests. This is bread that's called the bread of the presence. Once a week, the priests on the Sabbath would, uh, would have these 12 loaves of bread that they would bring into the tabernacle, and they would set before God, and it would symbolically stand there for all of the tribes of Israel as a declaration of who they were, of who God was, and it would stay there for a week. 
And then after a week, it would be taken out and new loaves would be set before God. And then the priests would get to eat these old, somewhat stale loaves of bread. And the high priest is saying, hey, hey, David, we have some bread. There's just one problem. Uh, it's this bread of the presence, this bread that you are not allowed to eat. But, he says, but, I'm going to do something here. As long as you, David, I know you're God's anointed one, and I know you're in a desperate situation. As long as you and your people have been kept ceremonially clean, I'm going to go ahead and let you have these loaves of bread. You can go ahead and eat this as long as you guys are clean before God. And the high priest, he's, he's understanding God's heart. He understands the heart of the law that, that is focused here. He's not constrained by this rigid interpretation that actually is going to prohibit him from loving his neighbor. And what's more, his neighbor is God's anointed one, the chosen one, and instead of fulfilling the spirit of the law. So here is Jesus. Come back to Mark chapter 2. Jesus is talking with the Pharisees. He's telling this story to the Pharisees. And he's basically saying the same thing is happening right now. Let's assume that you are correct, which, which is, is, a, is a bit of a stretch to say, say the least. But let's assume that my disciples are actually breaking the law. There is precedence for their actions. In fact, if you are going to condemn them, then you should also condemn David as well. And Jesus here, he's reminding the Pharisees that they're absolutely right in one sense. They're absolutely right to believe that God's law is important, that it, that it matters for us to keep God's law. But at the exact same time, he, he calls them out on this fact that they are so concerned with literal interpretation, with this rigid understanding of the law, that they abuse the heart of the law itself and use it as an excuse to condemn others instead of spurring them on to love God and to love others. But Jesus isn't finished. He continues in verse 27. He says this, And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. God did not create humanity for the sole purpose of obeying the Sabbath. Instead, the Sabbath was a gift from God to humanity, a gift for weary people to enjoy. The Pharisees have it all wrong. By adding all of these stipulations to the law, they're adding weight after weight after weight to what God has given to his people as a good gift. And they've taken this good gift from God and they've turned it into a curse. And you know what the really scary thing is? The Pharisees aren't the only ones who do this. Oftentimes, we can have a tendency to do this as well, to take something that's a good gift from God and turn it into a curse by placing so many expectations, so many secondary rules on what God wants for us and how we are to enjoy this gift that instead of being a gift, it just becomes a curse. When Crystal and I first got married, I created a list of about 20 things that we had to do as a part of our commitment to one another, as a part of our commitment to grow spiritually as a couple. And it, took, it included lengthy times in prayer. It included Bible study together, re, additional reading together. And, and you know, I'm, I'm talking not just a devotional. I'm talking like uh, systematic theology and things like that. Now you know how 
unbelievably patient my wife is. It included times like memorization and, and worship together on a consistent basis, fasting, serving together, on and on and on. And Crystal, uh, this unbelievably patient wife, endures it all in the midst of all of this craziness. And, and when I take this good gift from God, and, and instead of, of just allowing us to grow together in Christ the way God meant for us, I turned it into just this list of rules, uh, these unsufferable expectations, this curse that neither of us could enjoy. Wait after wait after wait after wait on a good thing that God had given to us and turned a gift into a curse. We all can have a tendency to do that. The Sabbath was something that went through the exact same transformation in the first century. It was meant as a gift. It was meant as rest. And instead, God's people oftentimes turned it into an impossible weight to carry. But Jesus doesn't just stop there. He doesn't stop with this reminder to the Pharisees of the original purpose of the Sabbath. He also goes further in verse 28. He talks about who he is. He says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus oftentimes used this phrase, the Son of Man. It was uh, from Daniel chapter 7. It's a picture of, of God's chosen, anointed king, the one who will rule over God's kingdom forever. And he oftentimes used it as a way to refer to himself. Now notice what Jesus is saying here. If you look carefully, Jesus is not just saying that he has authority over the Sabbath. He's not saying that, that he is the one who gets to say what goes and, and what stays and what's, what's allowed, what's not allowed when it comes to the Sabbath. If that's what Jesus were saying, he would have said, the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. Instead, Jesus uses a different word. He says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, he's saying the Son of Man is the Lord of rest. If you want to know where rest is, comes from the, the original purpose for the Sabbath, rest. If you want to know where true rest comes from, if you want to cease from your strivings, a day isn't going to cut it. All of these religious expectations aren't going to cut it. The only way for you to find true rest is to come to me, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of true rest. You see, earlier when Jesus refers to himself or refers to David as precedence for his disciples' actions, uh, he, he's making a claim about his identity. He's saying, if David, remember, David is God's anointed one. If David is not condemned for his actions in 1 Samuel 21, then how much more should I, God's true anointed one, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of true rest, how much more should I have authority to give true and lasting rest to God's people. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, do you want rest? Do you want to rest? Are you tired? Worn out? Are you on the edge of burnout? A vacation isn't going to cut it. One day a week isn't going to cut it. Let me help but not for long. And it certainly won't help for eternity. Jesus wants to know that if you want, wants you to know that if you want true rest, then you have to come to him, the Lord of the Sabbath. 
the Lord of true rest. Now, if we keep going, this claim, of course, uh, from Jesus doesn't exactly go over well with the Pharisees. And so we, we look at Mark chapter 3 and we see this other conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, another event on a, another Sabbath. Jesus now is in the synagogue. And here we see a second takeaway. And this is not just that Jesus brings true rest. He also brings true and lasting restoration. Notice starting in verse 1 of chapter 3. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they may accuse him. Well, here we see the Pharisees are watching Jesus again. They're again waiting to to just pounce on him, waiting for a chance to discredit him, ruin him. And now they have their opportunity. Jesus is worshiping in the equivalent of a first century Jewish church service. And one of the people in the the service is this man who has a withered hand. The the nerves in his hand have, have decayed, meaning he's unable to open up his hand. It's probably been this way for, for quite some time. It's certainly debilitating. We see, I think it's in the Gospel of Luke, the same story is included, and we see that it's actually his right hand, which would have been even more debilitating. It's a, it's a serious issue, and yet it's probably something he's lived with for quite some time. It's certainly not life or death. Now, up to this point, Jesus has healed every single person who has come to him for healing. Every single person. He, he hasn't turned anyone away, and now we have this tension building. Jesus is on a collision course with someone who needs healing. The only problem is it is on a Sabbath. Now, here's, here's something that's important for us to recognize. Jesus isn't caught off guard here. He's not like, oh, no, what am I going to do with this person that is right here? Should I heal him? Should I not? What are the implications? What, what, what should I do here? It's not where Jesus is at. Everything Jesus does in the Gospel of Mark, everything Jesus does during his ministry, everything Jesus does in this moment, in the synagogue, he does with purpose with thoughtfulness. And it's all as an effort to get the crowds and the Pharisees to respond to his message. So what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus uh, calls this man forward as an object lesson. Note in verse 3. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm to save life or to kill. But they were silent. So Jesus calls this man forward. He uses him as an object lesson in front of everyone in the synagogue. He brings him up front and he asks a question to everyone who's in the synagogue. He says, which is right? Which is permissible according to God's law? Is it to do good or is it to do evil? It's an obvious question. It's an easy answer. Sabbath is a gift from God, and it's a way for us to worship God, and so obviously the answer is doing good. Doing good on the Sabbath is permissible, but Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't just stop with doing good. He also takes it a bit further, and he says, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? And in doing so, He's actually escalating the issue. He's escalating the problem here, this this tension between him and the Pharisees. No one would have objected to what Jesus was saying, that it's it's right to do good on the Sabbath, it's right to save a life and not to murder someone on the Sabbath. Jewish tradition actually said it was okay on a Sabbath for you to save someone's life if they were in imminent danger. There's just one problem, and we've probably seen it, and, and I already mentioned it. According to the Pharisees, probably according to us, this man's life isn't in immediate danger. 
He doesn't have death staring down him in the face. It would have been just as easy for Jesus to wait six hours or however long it was to the end of the Sabbath and then say, hey man, come back then. I'll heal you then. I want to I keep the Sabbath. It, 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 you've, you've lived with this for years. Just come back in a few hours and I will heal you then. That's not what Jesus does. Instead, he doubles down on his claim from the previous section, this claim about who he is, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, that he is the Lord of true rest, and now we'll see the Lord of true restoration. He's using this situation that is serious but not life-threatening, and he makes it into a matter of life and death. One author, I love the way he describes it, he says, Jesus makes withholding the cure of this man's paralyzed hand, even for a few hours, tantamount to killing him. And performing the cure immediately tantamount to saving his life. Why on earth does Jesus speak in such strong terms here? Why does Jesus take something that is serious but, make it, but makes it into a matter of life and death? It's because he loves the man. He loves the crowd. And probably most significantly here at least, he loves the Pharisees. He loves the man, he loves the crowd, and he loves the Pharisees. He loves these people who are wayward sheep, even these people who are his enemies. And that love leads him to do anything to get them to grasp his message, his message of the gospel, his message of the kingdom, which we saw as we began our time in Mark, even if that means it leads to a confrontation between him and the crowds and the Pharisees. You see, to this point, the Pharisees and, and to some extent the crowds, they've, they've just refused time and time and time again to listen to Jesus' mes- uh, message, this message of the gospel. They refuse to, to listen to the claims Jesus makes about who he is. They refuse to, to listen to the implications of what he has accomplished. They refuse to, to listen to what he says is his, mes- uh, his, his mission. Jesus' message is this about the kingdom, that his message is one of of victory over evil. His message is of power over the effects of sin. He brings freedom from that sin. He brings forgiveness to everyone. Everyone is allowed to sit at his table, and he brings true rest. He brings true restoration. But the notion that all of this, all of this good news, Jesus says, you can have it, but it's found in me. It's found nowhere else. You can have God's kingdom, but you have to find it in me. And that's a tough pill for the people to swallow. And that's why we see such opposition to Jesus. The, the crowds, the Pharisees, they don't, they don't accept Jesus' claim about who he is. And if they don't do that, it is a matter of life and death. In fact, they stand in danger of eternal death. This life that that Jesus offers to them is going to be gone forever if they continue steadfastly time and time and time again to reject this message of who Jesus really is. And so Jesus escalates the tension here. He makes this simple healing into something that is so much more than just a simple, uh, uh, this simple healing. He makes it into a matter of life and death because, in one sense, it is a matter of life and death. How people respond to this message is a matter of life and death, not just for this man with the withered hand, but for each and every one of us. How we respond to the claims about Jesus, about who he is, is a matter of our eternal life or our eternal death. 
And that's why Jesus refuses to wait a few hours to heal this man. That's why Jesus does it right in the moment. He calls this man forward. It's because he loves this man, yes, but just as much it's because he's extending another invitation to the Pharisees, to everyone who would listen, these hard-hearted people, come to me. This text talks about the Pharisees' hard hearts, and that's a, a, a complex issue in scripture. If you look in the book of Exodus, that's oftentimes what we think of when we think of hard hearts. We think of of Pharaoh, and we're told time and time again that Pharaoh's hard heart leads to him refusing to let the people of Israel go. This hard heart and his refusal to listen to God free the people of Israel from slavery. And Exodus tells us multiple times that, that that, that Pharaoh actually hardens his own heart. And the text also tells us that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Here's what Exodus is is trying to teach us. The more that Pharaoh refuses to obey God, the harder his heart gets. And the harder it gets for him the next time he has an opportunity to listen to God, the next time he has an opportunity to obey God in the future, it will be even harder because his heart is even harder. Harder to the point at the end of Exodus chapter 11 or 12, when the, the final plague is brought, it's virtually impossible for him to, to listen, to repent, and believe because of the decisions he has made to this point. And the same thing is true here. At every turn, Jesus has presented to the crowds this truth about who he is. They've given him an opportunity to listen to his message, to repent and believe the gospel, as Jesus says in Mark chapter 1. And at every single turn, they ignore him. Every single time you have an opportunity to obey God and instead choose to disobey God, you are hardening your own heart. In contrast, every time that you have an opportunity to obey God and you do obey God, you're softening your heart. You're making it easier the next time that God asks you to do something, to listen to him, to obey him. The book of Hebrews describes how how important this is, to look at every moment as an opportunity to either harden your heart or soften your heart. Hebrews chapter 3 is talking about the importance of rest that Jesus gives to us. And it says this, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. As I, God, swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we see that they were unable to enter his rest because of unbelief. Like the crowds, like the Pharisees on that fateful Sabbath morning, Jesus has made a declaration about who he is and how we respond to that declaration today matters for your life. It is one of the most important things that you can do. If you choose to harden your heart, it will become harder the next time that you have an opportunity to listen to God for you to actually obey. In contrast, if you decide to listen to God, to obey him today, right here, right now, then it will get easier the next time. 
You soften your heart. You make it more easier for God to, to work in your life. How you respond to Jesus and his message, this message of giving true rest, true restoration, making all things new, just like this man's hand, is literally a matter of life and death. But then we look at verse 4, at the end of verse 4, the Pharisees, they, they choose to remain silent. They again ignore God's offer. They refuse to accept Jesus' terms, to accept his message. They ultimately refuse to accept Jesus as the one who can save them. And the end of this text tells us the serious nature of what comes next. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. The olive branch is, is extended, and it's instantly refused. And Jesus gets angry. He's, he's filled with fury at them. One, because they are so bound by their man-made religion that they refuse to let this man be healed. Or maybe more accurately, according to our text, for this man to experience restoration. But, but even more, he's angry at their hearts. That their hearts are hard toward his message. They have yet another opportunity to hear the gospel, to, to respond with faith, to respond with belief in who Jesus is, and instead they respond with bitter unbelief. Their hearts become even more calloused, even harder, even more difficult for grace in the gospel to permeate into their lives. And this thought grieves Jesus. Yes, he's furious with them, but he's also grieved at the trajectory of their unrepentance. They are on a path that will only lead to their destruction. Their stubborn unbelief, their steadfast commitment to dead religion over the gospel uh, is cutting themselves off from the restoration that comes only through Jesus. This text tells us that the man's hand, which was withered, Jesus asks him to stretch it out and, and something that would have been impossible for him to do. He's not able to stretch his hand out, and, and yet he responds with faith. And so he stretches his, his hand out for the first time in, in who knows how long. He stretches his hand out. And the nerves that have decayed, the muscles that have atrophied, the, the flesh that is decaying, uh, they're made strong and full of life once more. And here we see on the Sabbath, the day of restoration, Jesus restores this man and declares that he is where true restoration is found. But the Pharisees, of course, they refuse to accept it. They are filled with fury toward Jesus, just like Jesus is filled with fury toward them. And they depart, and they immediately meet with the Herodians. They form this fateful alliance with their sworn enemies that will eventually lead to Jesus' death. This is a, an incredibly startling partnership here. The Pharisees were this grassroots movement in, in uh, first century Judaism. Uh, they were committed to uh, going back to the Bible, to spiritual revival uh, through, uh, of Israel, through moral living, uh, through committing themselves to God's word. In contrast, the Herodians were extremely secular. They were those who were seated in power. They wanted to keep the status quo of Rome being in charge so that way they could keep their power. They didn't care about religion. 
It just wasn't something that they thought of. They thought themselves too refined. It was something that was unnecessary. They were too enlightened for these silly notions. And here we have these two polar opposites with nothing in common joining together because of the one thing they do have in common. Jesus must go. And that's how the text ends. It ends with this counsel that we see is already pointing us toward the cross. And so as we come to the, the close of these two stories, what can we learn? Well, we started this morning uh, by saying that, that Jesus claims here in this text that he is the place where true rest, true restoration can be found and in him alone. So what does that mean for us? Well, first, uh, this morning, what it means for us is that Jesus, uh, when it comes to giving us true rest, it, it reminds us that you will never find lasting rest you will never find lasting peace outside of the person of Jesus. At some level, you will always be searching, always be striving, always be wondering if there is more out there outside of the rest that the Lord of the Sabbath gives to you. Many of you are likely familiar with the name Eric Liddell. Eric Liddell, uh, his story is made famous by the movie Chariots of Fire. Eric, Eric Liddell was a world-class Olympian, uh, an athlete during the 1924 uh, Olympic Games. And he was a devout Christian. He later, on, later went on to become a missionary in China. And during the 1924 Games, his, his best hit event, his strongest event, was scheduled to race or compete on a Sunday. It was his best chance for glory, and it's scheduled on a Sunday. And because of his convictions, Eric Liddell chooses to not compete, and he loses his chance at that medal. He wins another medal, but he loses his chance at what everyone saw as his best opportunity for glory. It's a powerful testimony of religious conviction on display, but the movie goes even further than that by contrasting Eric Liddell's actions with the actions and the thoughts of one of his contemporaries, a man named Harold Abrahams. He was a British contemporary of Liddell. Abraham's also a world-class athlete, also competing in those same events as, uh, as Eric Liddell. But notice, I'm going to read to you a, a, a summary from an author, and just notice the difference between these two men and their view of rest. And not just rest, but their view of rest that lasts. This author sums it up this way. Abrahams and Liddell were both trying very hard to win gold medals, but Abrahams was doing it out of a need to prove himself. At one point, speaking of the sprint event in which he was competing, he said, I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. Liddell, on the other hand, simply wanted to please God, the God who had already accepted him. That's why he said to his sister, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Harold Abrahams was weary even when he rested, and Eric Liddell was rested even when he was exerting himself. What a powerful contrast here between what it means for us to find true, lasting rest in the Lord of the Sabbath and to always be striving to try to prove yourself, to show that you are good enough. You see, as we read in Mark chapters 2 and 3, we are challenged to come to Jesus for that true lasting rest. Second, we are reminded that Jesus is the place of true, lasting restoration. The fact that Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath is a reminder to us that one day he's going to heal all of our afflictions, 
All of our pains, all of our diseases, all of our ailments, all of our weaknesses, all of our shortcomings will one day be taken care of because of Christ. He is the one who is going to restore us and all of his creation beyond its former glory. We live today in an age that is terrified of death. We, we avoid death at all costs. We spend billions of dollars each year as a society to avoid the signs of aging, to avoid our weaknesses and our frailties. And what we see here is that one who trusts in Jesus for their everlasting restoration, we are reminded that death has already been defeated, that there is no need to fear death. It has already been defanged. It has lost its poison at the cross of Christ. Such a confidence is what inspires the the Apostle Paul to declare, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Only a person who is confident in their everlasting restoration at the hands of the Lord of the Sabbath can confidently say to die is gain. And as we look at Mark chapter 2 and chapter 3, we are challenged to come to Jesus for true and lasting restoration. There's just one more thing from this text, and it reminds us of the danger of trusting in religion instead of Christ. In one sense, that's what these two stories are ultimately about. They're forcing us to ask these questions. Do I trust in Christ or do I trust in religion? Am I consumed with what I am doing for God? Or am I resting in the one who has already accomplished my salvation? St. Augustine from the 300s and 400s, he sums this contrast up beautifully when he is uh, describing or he's comparing the writings of, of ancient philosophers with the words of Jesus. And he once wrote this. This is one of my favorite quotes. I've read in Plato and Cicero sayings wise and beautiful, but never in either come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Jesus alone brings true, lasting rest. It's not found in religion. It's not found in secularism. It's not found in the American dream. It's found nowhere but in the person of Jesus, the one who says, come to me, and I will give you rest. Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Are you tired of of all of the demands and expectations of religion, of trying to be good enough, of trying to be accepted in this world? Then Jesus says, come to me. It's said that one of the last things a founder of one of the world's most prominent religions said was never cease striving. Compare that to Jesus' last words on the cross. It is finished. It is finished. The Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of rest and restoration comes to bring you that rest. He comes to bring you that restoration to carry your burdens, to make all things right. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Jesus, we are reminded of how desperately we need you for rest. In a world that moves 
so fast, that is so hectic, that is so busy, oftentimes in a way to ignore you. We thank you for rest. And God, you and you alone know how much each person here needs rest. And so, God, we ask that we would find that in you, that we would come to you, the Lord of the Sabbath, for rest and restoration, that we would not trust in our own efforts, that we would not pursue meaning and significance somewhere else, but it would be found in you and you alone. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.